This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Every week we take a look at some of the most important and intriguing stories from the issue with the writers behind them. I'm Laura Prendergast, The Spectator's executive editor. This week, has the Biden presidency stalled or crashed? Plus, should we welcome or fear the metaverse? And finally, is the idea of buy now, pay later financially precarious for young people? First up, in our cover story this week, Freddie Gray assesses the state of the Biden presidency, with steadily lowering approval ratings, a disastrous Afghanistan withdrawal, and this week's failure of the Democrats to hold on to the Virginia governorship, how much trouble is the US's oldest inaugurated president in? Freddie joins me now along with Emily Tamkin, the US editor of The New Statesman and co-host of the World Review podcast. Freddie, you say in your piece that Biden's been in office for less than a year and his presidency is already a catalogue of crises. What seems to be going wrong? I think there's a lot going wrong, and I, I think the main problem is is Joe Biden himself. And it's sort of been called a kind of right-wing talking point to talk about how he is and whether he's mentally capable of being president. But I think it's becoming increasingly obvious that he's not. He's not actually capable. He's not performing at a very high level. And it's not as if he's got this brilliant administration behind him that is across everything. There's a lot of crises. There's a crisis at the border. There's a crisis with the economy. There's a crisis with covid there's all sorts of things going wrong, and he's not actually performing very well as a president, and this is showing in the polls, and it's now showing in elections. I mean, there was a small but important election in Virginia this week. What exactly happened, and, and how is the result landing in America? There was. It was the gubernatorial election in Virginia, and so this is a state that Biden won handily last year, and that had started, people had started to think of as a, as a blue state, right, which for us is a democratic state. And Glenn Youngkin, who was the Republican candidate, won. So you always, one always wants to be careful as to how much from a state or local election we, we read about national politics or take, uh, you know, interpret to be about national politics. But obviously, this is not good news for Biden and the Democrats that you won the state in 2020. And now just a year later, Terry McAuliffe, the Democratic candidate who who really tried to tie Glenn Youngkin to Trump and sort of campaigned against Trump that he lost. I think this for Republicans and Democrats, this says two different things. I think Democrats will should come away from this understanding that they cannot just run against Trump, that that is not going to work. Um, they need to run on something and for something. Republicans, particularly those in more purple, so quote unquote purple states, more moderate states, swing states, will look at Youngkin and say, I want to do that, right? I want to balance between not actually rebuking Trump and indeed adopting some of his rhetoric as my own while uh, presenting as a more establishment Republican so that you can keep the Trump base and also win back some of the suburban votes that the Republicans had lost in 2020. And Democrats need to figure out how to, how to answer that. Freddie, you say in your piece say that Biden's strength is the weakness of his opposition and that the Republicans still can't really work out what their identity is. What is our identity at the moment, the Republican Party? Well, I think it's a big problem for the Republican Party. And I think there's this sort of desperation to say that Glenn Youngkin successfully disassociated himself from Trump, which is true. I think he did. He wasn't, he didn't sort of campaign with Trump. He, didn't, he tried not to talk about Trump. 
But the point is, is that the Democrats made the whole thing about Trump and then they still lost heavily. So what does that tell you? Does that tell you that Glenn Youngkin is brilliant because he's moving the party away from Trump? Or is it that actually the party is still the party of Trump? This is something the Republicans can't solve. And I mean, can they win an election as the party of Trump? Can they stop Donald Trump running again? If he runs again, will they stop him winning the nomination? I don't think they will. I think that outside of, I don't, I don't mean to discredit Freddie from the beginning saying this is made out as a right-wing talking point, but I do think that here it generally does go down as a right. It's something that the right is talks about a lot and m- most other people are not talking about that much. Now, maybe this is because we just had Trump. And so maybe if it was Obama then going into Biden, it would look starker and more different. I think that is not, you know, there was also the clip of Boris Johnson sort of slouching sleepily in his chair. I don't know that that is really what's... Yeah, I mean, I can't, um, I can't blame Biden for falling asleep during, as I say in my piece, who wouldn't fall asleep during COP26? But, but it's, not, it's not... I think, I think Emily, you're lying if you say that it's just like a right-wing thing. I think everybody is asking themselves, is Biden mentally competent, right? And I don't think he's answering that very convincingly. Maybe he doesn't have to answer it. But, I mean, I, d- I don't think it's just kind of Fox News crazies that they're saying, is he all there? What I am saying is that I do not think this is the most pressing concern for most Americans, American well, voters, American pundits. Is it is not, it is, what I am saying is that this is not what people by and large are talking about when they're talking about what's going wrong with Biden. I think that the pandemic, I think the economy, I think not getting his legislation through, there are so many other crises, to your point, that, that are sort of coalescing at this one time that I, I, you know, I just disagree with you and I don't, I'm not lying sure. to say that. Sorry, I didn't that. mean to you of lying. That was too strong. Uh, Freddie, what's, what's Kamala Harris up to against all of this backdrop of Biden? Well, that's another interesting dynamic that, you know, every, again, another sort of probably right-wing talking point is that, you know, Kamala Harris was going to be sort of shoveled in when Biden obviously failed. Uh, but that doesn't seem to be happening. And the, the relationship between Team Biden and Team Harris, as far as I understand it, is very bad at the moment. And she is not proving to be this sort of effective waiting in the wings vice president who was going to run in 2024. So I think Democrats, as much as I understand it, are saying, what are we going to do in 2024? Because we've got a very unpopular vice president, more unpopular than Biden, according to the polls, and a president whose popularity is sliding and who doesn't seem to be doing a very good job at all. Emily, do you think there is some likelihood that in the 2024 election, we could see Kamala v. Trump? Maybe, but I also think that if she runs again, I, I don't think that it's counted. I, I think that she could be primaried or have Democratic opponents against her. I actually don't think the idea that she's not popular is a right-wing talking point at all. I think that uh, that's pretty well-established and well-accepted, that she's struggled in this role of vice president um, and sort of struggled with how to present herself, what her issues are. She's been given a slate of tremendously difficult issues, given the border, was given voting rights, was space, was just sent, is now being sent off to France to smooth things, smooth things over with Macron. So she's been given like quite an ambitious, some might say the most ambitious and, and significant issues, and not surprisingly has not managed to solve them. Don't you recommend so it, if you wanted if, to smooth something yeah. over? I think Kamala Harris would be one of the last people I would send to smooth something over. Uh, I don't I don't see that she's going to make it. I, how, how to put this? Yeah, it does seem that she 
has a tendency to create stories that are, that she has been sent out to to quiet, right? So you know, there's the, the the example of this interview where they said, "Well, you haven't been to the border yet," and she said, "And I haven't been to Europe," which you know, I'm sure maybe it's one line in an interview, but it, it sounds quite quite politically unastute. Or she had a rally in Virginia where she said, "You know, Virginia, don't Texas, Virginia." Well, if you're going to have to run again in Texas. Why would you? Why would you say that? Yes. Um, so I think that. And did she also I, say I Joe Biden sort of has been to the border, in, but he went in two thousand and eight? I mean, I just think my point is that I don't think that she is sort of the heir apparent of the Democratic Party, which maybe some thought that she was when she was selected to be his running mate. I think we agree on that. Yeah. Freddie, one of the points you make in your piece is that voters maybe thought that Joe Biden wasn't going to have much truck with critical race theory, but actually, it seems to be the case that it is becoming more kind of prominent as a discussion point in American politics. What exactly is critical race theory and, and how is that being kind of pushed through Don't by Biden? I, I, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just one of these things. Again, I hate to keep saying right-wing talking point, but it is one of these things where Fox News, whatever, Tucker Carlson says they're, they're bringing critical race theory into schools and Democrats say, no, that's rubbish, that's made up, it's fake news. And it turns out it is actually happening and parents get upset about it and everyone's like, well, it's actually racist to be concerned about about critical race theory and the point about biden is that i don't think anybody elected joe biden to implement a a kind of hyper progressive agenda on transgender stuff race stuff but they're getting it they're getting it and they don't like it people don't like it people vote against it do you think that's fair emily I think that Democrats need to come up with a better answer than, no, we're not teaching critical race theory in schools. Because so critical race theory is the legal theory that basically says that American systems work to uphold white supremacy. You can agree with that or not. That's what critical race theory is. So when, you know, when, when Democrats say they're not teaching a legal theory in school, they're not wrong. That's not being taught K through 12. But on the other hand, race and racism and diversity and anti-racism, that is being taught in schools. And Democrats need to either defend that, you know, and sort of you know, say it with their chest or or say you're right and we agree. But this kind of no, don't look over there is not working. And we just saw that in Virginia. I do want to add that I think time will tell if in Virginia that was the issue, the extent to which that was the issue, the extent to which parental frustration with school closure during COVID was an issue. Like to what extent was it critical race theory and to what extent was it frustration with, you know, trying to keep your kids in school during a pandemic? So but as I wrote this week, I do think that Republicans will continue to run on this issue, which means that Democrats need to be prepared to to also run on to, to run against it or to to have a response that's not just it's not happening. That's not good enough. And presumably, Freddie, all of that would be good for Trump if he did try and run again. Well, it's a big it's a big Trumpy issue. Yeah, it's, it's something he talks about a lot. And and I think, yeah, as you say, they do need a response. And, they, and the response can't be it's not happening, because it is. And it can't be you're racist for being concerned about it. So they, they've got to come up with something. If it's redefining or defining clearly what critical race theory is, then maybe that is it. But I, I, I don't think it's going to be popular. I mean, just finally, Freddie mentions in his piece that the young are giving up on Biden as well. What, what should we make of that? I think, well, two things. Young voters are traditionally harder to get out, to get out to vote than older voters. And they typically do better. It's typically behooves Democrats to get young voters out to vote. So if you have this population, this voting population, that's harder to get out, but will vote for you if they get out and they're losing interest in you, that's not good either. I think, I mean, to me, a lot of the frustration with Biden on the left is that if you want to call your, if you want to liken yourself to FDR, FDR did a lot. 
you can say some of it was successful, some of it was not, some of it was not successful, but his early administration was marked by just constant action and motion and movement and attempts. And I think there's this frustration that we're not, that the people are not seeing that, right? You know, you have this legislation stalled in Congress. You said, oh, we're going to pass this, that, you know, we're going to do this on climate change. We're going to do this on paid leave. We're going to do this on, I don't know, Medicare. And they're not seeing it. And so that frustrates people, particularly on the left and particularly the young. Thank you, Freddie and Emily. The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Next up, Kit Wilson writes in The Spectator this week about Facebook's new venture into the metaverse, a concept that most of us probably hadn't heard of until last week. To lay out the roadmap for what our journey into this new digital reality might look like, Kit joins me now, along with Tom Renner, a software engineer for Navviz. Kit, in this week's issue of The Spectator, you write about the metaverse, and and listeners might have heard of it, but for those who aren't accustomed to the term or the idea, what exactly is the metaverse? Uh, It's a great question. The short answer is nobody quite knows. It's a concept that, well, there isn't really one single agreed-upon definition, and different people use the term in slightly different ways to refer to a range of similar but not identical phenomena. I suppose the easiest way of thinking about it is it's an attempt to describe what the internet's going to look like in 5, 10, 15 years from now. And certain technological developments that are already happening right now all around us uh, will reach a point of such sophistication and integration into our everyday lives and into the internet more generally that the internet will look very different. And the main difference is going to be that virtual reality and augmented reality of various kinds will be so sophisticated so commonplace and so intimately woven into our day-to-day lives that the distinction between the the real world and a variety of virtual worlds will begin to break down, basically. Tom, you might be able to explain a bit how that will actually happen. (laughs) What will it look like? Will we all be walking around with glasses on that allow us to enter the metaverse? Yeah, so that is Facebook's vision. Um, Mark Zuckerberg's announced that they're working on a whole suite of things. And glasses is obviously one of the key technologies like you mentioned at the moment people might be familiar with um, products like the oculus rift or facebook's quest which are sort of very large like goggles that sit on your face um, that you have to wear kind of like a scuba diving mask that's obviously a bit clunky but what they're looking for and what they're aiming towards is to shrink that all the way down into like regular spectacle sized glasses so that you'll be able to through those look at both the real world and also digital objects that are projected there so that you can interact with the digital world at the same time. Kit, what will we be able to do in this world? Will we have friends? Will we be able to go shopping and eat? Uh, hopefully we'll still have friends, some of us anyway. Um, yeah, it's it, a lot of this is speculation. We don't know for sure. But what we would expect is many of the features of our everyday lives now will be augmented or, or uh, revolutionised in a variety of ways. So... You might be walking down the street, let's say you walk down the street and you see a car that you really like the look of and you want to find out more about it. Well, you're, you're lucky because you're wearing your augmented reality goggles and you can essentially click on that car and it creates a series of hyperlinks. And then you might be able to select one of them, which is to transport you straight away into a virtual showroom and you can go and explore that car and similar models and even test drive them in some sort of 
virtual reality showroom. And then with a click of the button, you're back out in the everyday world. And really, insofar as I understand it, the, the, the main thing about the metaverse is that it's going to be quite seamless. All of these things are going to be fairly seamless. So we will transition very quickly between a whole range of different virtual and semi-virtual experiences over the course of a normal day. So rather than at the moment where our understanding of virtual reality is that it's this discrete separate realm that we enter into for an hour or two for a meeting or for a game, there will be little aspects of virtual reality around us all day long. We might have uh, our smart devices all around us in our homes that are interacting with us constantly through whatever it is that we're wearing, that are giving us notifications and reminders and warnings and even advertising. So insofar as I understand it, I think it's just going to be around us the whole time. Uh, Our lives might look fairly similar in most respects, but pretty much every aspect will be, uh, depending on your point of view, uh, augmented or interfered with by these technologies. It sounds like it could be heaven for some people, but hell for others. Tom, Tom, what do you think? Do you, are you scared of <laughs> yeah. the metaverse or are you excited for it? I think I would describe myself as equal parts excited and terrified. I think it's going to, uh, the opportunity is huge, obviously. I think one area that it really makes a lot of sense is in the business world. Uh, I mean, with coronavirus, I think everyone has got used to working from home and seeing the world through a small screen and all of their colleagues in 2D. And businesses have really enjoyed the cost savings that have come with that, not having to run a full office and um, uh, people working from the comfort of their own home. And all the surveys about the future of work show that office workers enjoy working from home as well. But being able to work from home in the metaverse, so to speak, um, if that's a phrase that exists yet, (laughs) it gives you so much more richer opportunities for interacting with people and makes it a much more natural experience to work alongside your colleagues while you're physically very far away from each other. Of course, it does also open the door for advertisements to be blasted into your eyes as you're walking down the high street without you having much much chance to turn them off. Um, so It does sound quite I, hellish. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I think there's uh, a lot of opportunities and uh, a lot of risks as well, depending on exactly how it's implemented, really. And that's, I think, what's really exciting if you're an optimist or scary if you're not about the announcement and the stage we're at is that there's a huge vision and huge opportunities but actual concrete details of how it's going to be implemented haven't yet been nailed down. Okay as you say in your piece there still seems to be one insurmountable hurdle which is that no matter how good VR headsets get weight in the digital realm always just lack the fundamental physicality of reality what what are the kind of thoughts on that and how they're going to overcome that side of it? Yeah, I mean, as, as I say in the piece, this sort of gets into the realm of science fiction. Obviously, being able to replicate the way that the world looks and sounds is, in principle, fairly easy. Being able to replicate sensations, subjective sensations like taste and smell and, and so on, is, in principle, a lot more difficult. There could be a number of partial or whole solutions to that. A, a kind of slightly clunky workaround would be, let's imagine you, you go for a virtual drink with someone in a virtual pub and there's the obvious problem of well how do you get a drink well what you do is you order and a drone delivers you a pint of beer um, in 20 seconds so okay you can't quite replicate the uh, experience of the bartender there actually pulling the pint in front of you Um, but you can actually have a drink and therefore you will actually be able to taste whatever it is that you want to drink obviously that's only a part solution 
I suppose, depending on what you think is physically possible, we might reach a point where you could have neural implants that essentially trick the brain into perceiving sensations that aren't caused by anything in the immediate environment. So you might essentially just have a pint of water in front of you, but with a click of a button, you can trick your brain into thinking that it tastes like beer or gin or wine or anything else. There are debates about how feasible that actually is. And as I say, that's kind of at the extreme end of the predictions about the future. I don't know, I'm slightly skeptical about that. But it might be possible in the very long term that we can supplement the kind of visual and oral aspects of virtual reality with things that actually trick us into subjective sense um, experience. Tom, you work for Navviz, which creates software machines that do accurate 3D modeling of three world spaces. How would that feed into the metaverse? Is that going to be a kind of key component of the metaverse? Well, I think seamlessly integrating these digital and real spaces is obviously going to be a key component of it. And in that sense, I think there's an amount of overlap. Of, you know, we bring um, physical spaces into the digital world. And um, the metaverse is trying to bring, I guess, physical people into the digital world. So you can see how they might mesh together. I think it's exactly right in that the physical experience um, is going to be a real challenge. It's, it's, it's a common problem uh, that they're having at the moment with AR headsets is um, motion sickness can occur where basically you can't quite render the image of the digital world in the way that your eyes expect to see it. Uh, we're not quite as good at, at tricking the brain into thinking something's really there as, as we would like to be. And there's also cases where uh, you have to create a physical model of a person and so that, you know, if you're trying to pick something up, they presume you have to assume where a person's hand is in the digital world. And there's cases where differently abled people um, or people of different body shapes have found that where their body is in the real world does not match where it's expected to be in the virtual world. It's created problems for you know, accessibility, like uh, even just simple things like uh, walking through narrow spaces in virtual games um, if you have a larger body type that has been a problem women have found that uh, the default model is male and so all of a sudden their breasts don't exist in the virtual world or other such embarrassing issues um, so I do think that the physical part of things is going to be a real problem here. Kit do you think there could be moral issues that arise in, in the metaverse? Yeah undoubtedly I mean uh, with any technological development there are going to be new moral issues and very old moral issues I mean continuations of long-standing problems that humans have struggled with for as long as we're aware. There are obviously all sorts of problems, and predicting all of them is difficult. But it doesn't take that much imagination to foresee problems to do with privacy of people's data, how that might be used by companies, by, uh, let's say, authoritarian governments who find it very handy that they can track exactly where you are in the metaverse at any particular moment. There could be all sorts of unforeseen consequences for things like the high street. It might be that if we um, find ourselves so comfortable with using uh, virtual replicas of things like, uh, well, let's say uh, the experience of shopping, it might be that shops get to a point where they no longer actually want to have physical stores anymore. They want to encourage people to go into virtual stores and try things on on their digital replica bodies and then eventually deliver the clothes by drone or something. So it could have all sorts of uh, sort of social consequences for things like the high street. But then there's also a basic issue that I 
touch on in the piece of our own sort of internal privacy, our own sense of being ourselves and not being interfered with or disturbed with by the external world. And obviously, that's a utopian ideal in a way. We are always being disturbed by people outside us. Um, and it's become more of a problem with the rise of smartphones. And we feel, or at least most people, recognize that the way they think about reality has changed, that they always feel on demand or uh, connected to this network from, from which they can never quite opt out. I can't see any way that the metaverse wouldn't make that worse. I can't see how we're going to be embedded in this endless series of virtual realities without them essentially invading that kind of inner mental space that we all cherish. So, yeah, we don't, we don't yet know. And um, Tom hinted at, at the problems of motion sickness. At, at a psychological level, we don't know quite what's going to happen to the human brain when we really do feel like whatever environment we're in is completely real. No one has yet experienced a virtual reality experience that is that lifelike. And that could have all sorts of consequences on the way that we experience reality. But I certainly think that there are a lot of reasons to be pretty worried about it, as I am. And Tom, just just finally, obviously Facebook has rebrand, was trying to rebrand now as Meta. When do you think Metaverse might become a reality? Or is it, or is it already a reality? Can people be on the Metaverse already? So I, I suspect that we'll see something like a stage rollout of, of what Facebook thinks was the Metaverse. What was I thought was striking about the announcement was that they announced an ambition. Um, they announced a vision. No parts of it really were products that you could go out and try new features of Facebook that you could sign into and, and try out on the day. It was, it was just a grand vision of something that they hope will happen in future. And as such, I would be incredibly surprised if the entire vision came off as they expected it to. I will say that I'm expecting there to be areas that certainly happen. I know Google is also looking at things like, rather than Zoom calls coming through a screen like we're doing now, instead being able to project holograms of if you sit in a certain seat, you can be projected into a room as a certain size. So I expect things like that to come first. My rule of thumb, or my hunch, I guess, is that I expect anything where you can start off sitting <laughs> is, going to, is going to happen first because motion and walking through a digital world is much harder than being placed stationary into a digital place. So I'd expect the first applications being for, for offices and for work, and then you'll start seeing group spaces for you know, things like sitting around a table playing games. Um, maybe if Amazon's delivery is... Uh, if it, catches up with pub service, the, the pint that Kit, Kit was mentioning. In my local pubs, maybe that's not so hard. But um, I think, yeah, anything, anything that involves walking through a digital world will be much harder, but uh, placing yourself stationary into one is something that I think is technologically possible. Kit and Tom, thank you for joining. Just a quick interjection here. If you're enjoying this podcast, we have a host of other podcasts available, including Table Talk, which I host with Olivia Potts, it's released every two weeks and we're always joined by an interesting guest who tells us all about their life through food and drink. All the links are available in the description. Finally, our own Gus Carter has been exploring the new Swedish-born app that's blowing up with the youth, Klarna. On the face of it, it seems to be just a modern replacement for a credit card with some gifts thrown in. But could this buy now, pay later model have some unexpected consequences for its users? 
Gus joins me now, along with the author of the blog, Young Money, Iona Bain. Gus, in this week's issue, you write about something called Klarna, which you describe as a powder pink app. What exactly is Klarna? So Klarna is essentially an online lender. So anyone that wants to make a purchase through a through an online merchant, they can choose to pay through Klarna. And what that means is they can do kind of one of three things with their payments. They can either split it up into three and so repay the cost of their of their purchase over three months. They can split it over slightly longer and that's that's interest free. They can split it over over a slightly longer period and pay a kind of standard interest rate similar to other credit cards. Or they can do something called buy now, pay later, which is where you press purchase, no money comes out of your account, and the goods turn up at your at your door. And have you used it? Uh, I haven't used that, but I've used something similar. As I wrote in the piece, I, I had a, a puncture on my on my bike and decided the thing was looking a bit rickety and took it in to a bike shop. And the cost of the service was quite expensive. And so I decided I would try something new on my Monzo app, which is a which is a bank, which also comes with a pink card. There seems to be something about upstart finance. Pink. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, they've got me. Which basically allowed me to split the payment over three months, again, without having to pay any interest. And I thought, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try it, having been someone that's quite sceptical or at least quite wary of, of borrowing. So, yeah, that's what I did. I mean, in Gus's piece, he mentions that Stella Creasy has compared Klarna to Wonga, that notorious payday lender. W- would you agree with that? No, I don't agree with Stella's statement there because payday lenders had exploitation baked into their very business model. They deliberately targeted low-income borrowers who would struggle to pay back what they owed. The payday lenders knew this and therefore charged extra on top of the original interest, which was already incredibly high. And so they directly profited from those vulnerable borrowers. And once regulation was introduced and we saw the interest that could be charged on payday loans capped, then that made the whole business model unviable. Whereas with Klarna and buy now pay later firms, it's not actually in their interest for their users to fall behind on payments because they don't charge late fees. And it just adds another cost to the firm's books because they have to refer those users onto debt collection agencies. They have to chase them up multiple times through multiple channels. And it's a huge hassle for the firm. So when the likes of Klarna say they want all their users to pay back what they owe on time, they are actually being genuine. The problem here is that there is a real tension at the heart of the buy now, pay later business model that I don't think can be resolved And I think regulation is only going to make it worse and that there will be a risk that, as with payday loans, that those tougher rules around buy now, pay later will make this whole industry unviable. Klarna wants to be as accessible as possible because it makes money from people deciding to go through with their purchases, even if they don't have enough money in their bank account. And retailers appreciate that and therefore pay them a fee for securing those purchases. But once you introduce this kind of layer of complexity to the process, once you start having harder credit checks, which might rule out more vulnerable consumers, or you start, you know, having scary disclaimers around the fact that you would be entering a consumer credit agreement, 
then that could be really off-putting to a lot of customers. It could put the fear of God in them and scare them away. Uh, And that's not what Klarna or the retailer wants. But if we start to see tougher regulation, that's the direction that we're going to head in. And therefore, I think buy now, pay later is going to have a really hard time because they're just not going to be as open as and accessible as they once were. Gus, you say in your piece that Klarna's detractors argue that the company is trapping young, inexperienced spenders in debt. Would you agree with that? No, I don't necessarily think, I mean, like Iona said, I don't think their model is predicated on the idea of of trapping people in debt. But I think where Iona's right is 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 their, their aim is to try and speed up the payment system to such a degree that, that you don't even think about it. It's just it's just a kind of click of the finger and and your order's gone through. I think where I would where I'd kind of disagree a little bit is I would say that's really on the individual to decide whether or not that's a good thing for them. I mean, I certainly find when I'm when I'm in the checkout stage of buying something online, that's normally when I actually have to make a decision. Look, do I want this or am I just sat here late at night on my phone? bored wanting to buy something but I think if you took that kind of argument and you looked at old forms of of buying things remotely so you know when people used to get kind of big magazines through of all these different products and and you know ring someone up and and hand over their bank details now we've moved to online that makes things easier that doesn't mean we necessarily don't want online purchasing In, in fact it's incredibly useful. I know one of the points that Gus makes in his piece is that Klarna are using all these influencers and and sort of lobbyists to kind of reinforce their business. What do you make of that? Does that suggest there's something slightly nefarious going on here? No, I I just think that Klarna's whole business model is aimed at younger people. So they have to deploy influencers to normalise the product and they will engage in lobbying like all financial firms will. And you'll see firms like Klarna regularly come out with statements like we welcome regulation and this is all a step in the right direction because that's what a respectable mainstream financial firm has to do. But I think coming back on some of Gus's points there, I do agree that we have to have a market where people can choose better, more flexible ways to pay. But my concern is firstly that a lot of people are using Klarna unwittingly because very often when they get to the checkout, that box has already been ticked for them. So for me, that undermines this whole idea that they have a choice. It's almost like they are being cajoled into using it. And in fact, you know, I think that the the fight in the future will be to control the way that people pay for their online purchases because we're seeing the slow death of cash and because we're buying everything online. Financial firms really want to be the gateway to our online shopping. They want to be the the, the mediator, the middleman. And the firms that will be victors in this market will be those that we use automatically without really thinking about it. But that's a concern because if you end up with the likes of Klarna having a monopoly over those payment options, then yeah, okay, you might be using buy now, pay later in a perfectly functional way now, but in the future, you might end up using one of their more traditional loan products that come with interest charges. And now Klan is saying that it's going to offer the option to pay in full at the checkout. That's a a novelty, Uh, (laughs) you know, because actually for a lot of us, obviously that's what we should be doing anyway. But when they present that kind of option, what they're actually saying is, well, in future, you'll be using Klarna to pay for everything, you know, whether you like it or not. 
and uh, yeah, we'll give you the option to pay in full. But, you know, just in case you change your mind and you might want to put off paying for what you owe straight away, then yeah, you can use buy now, pay later because who wants to settle the bill straight away? That's where these firms are tapping into something very primal and dangerous. And if, if I can just bring up a second point as well, quite controversial to say this, but actually young people, generally speaking, are vulnerable regardless of their socioeconomic status, simply because they haven't been out there in the world for very long. They're very often bombarded with these complex consumer commitments and they don't fully understand what they're getting themselves into. And in my work, I've come across lots of young people who don't know or don't care that they're getting into credit and debt with Klarna. And that's really worrying. And I think that represents a generational shift in attitudes to debt whereby, you know, once upon a time, baby boomers had this incredible mistrust of debt and talked about putting things on the never-never. And Gus talks about store credit and catalogue credit being the big scandal of the 90s and noughties. And even millennials still have this kind of love-hate relationship whereby they, they know that they need debt to survive, but they're not entirely keen on it. But the younger generation of shoppers, those 18 to 25-year-olds, they're laughing about Klarna online. You know, they they... They know on some level it's not a good idea, but that's not going to stop them using it. I know. I'm just going to pick you up on something there. I think at one point you said some of the young people I meet just don't seem to care. Well, mm. who, whose fault is that? I don't think it's I don't think it's Klarna's fault. I think they're offering. It might be a good service. It might not be a good service. It's really down to how the individual wants to use it. But there's a problem there in the way that that people young people especially think about their finances. And I think it, it's slightly missing the mark to to go after you know, new companies like Klarna, rather than looking at why attitudes to debt and attitudes to spending have changed. Yeah, it's a really good point. But I think the difference between Klarna and, say, a traditional credit card firm is that when you take out a credit card, it is a big commitment and you you know what you're getting into. And they've been around for decades. And I think that the, the risks of credit cards are well documented. And I don't come across that many young people who accidentally take out a credit card. It has to be a very conscious decision on their part. And then, yes, maybe they'll get into trouble with it. But, you know, they, they have they've grown up in an environment in which all those risks are, are very well known and well publicised. Now, you could say with buy now, pay later, it's just a young market. Give it some time. And in due course, young people will also learn how to use these options in a responsible way. But I think, you know, we were talking about this before we came on, I think. There are so many different buy now, pay later options. They all come with different terms and conditions. They all operate in a different way. And it's very easy for younger people to fall foul of those options. And and also, you know, if they do fall foul of them, sometimes it, it might not be just because they're irresponsible. It could just be because their circumstances have changed. It could be because they've got an undiagnosed condition like ADHD, which means that they might be more disorganized with their finances. There could be all sorts of reasons why something that seemed like a good idea at the checkout can become really problematic and unravel in the space of a few weeks. Just finally, guys, you mentioned in your piece that your parents have always said to you that if you don't have the money for something, you don't buy it. <laughs> what, what do they think about buy now, pay later? <laughs> uh, I don't think they know what it is. Actually, my mum texted me this morning and said, what we really taught you was that you should try and steal it uh, <laughs> if, you, if you can't afford it. Uh, yeah, no, really good advice. No, I think, I think to them, I, I mean, my dad only stopped using a checkbook about five years ago. To them, it's a completely kind of almost un, unknown world. Uh, yeah, I, mean, I don't know what else to say about that. <laughs> it's a brilliant no, I, yeah. I know, what I about you? What do you, what do you, I mean, for the sort of, 
older generation, what, what do you think they make of all of this? Yeah, I think it's one reason why younger people are so vulnerable when it comes to buy now, pay later, because their parents are completely out of touch with this whole world and they grew up with different forms of debt. And whenever my mum talks to me about debt, she's referring to products that young people haven't really heard of. And yes, she's aware of buy now, pay later because of my work. But to her, it's a completely alien world. And indeed, this whole idea that if you want to, you know, hold on to your money, just go and withdraw some cash from the ATM. And that's the best budgeting tool around. Well, cash at the moment, it's uh, it's verboten because of uh, what's happened with the pandemic. So I think we need to really update our frames of reference when we're talking to young people about money today. Thank you, Gus and Iona. And that's everything for this week. If you've enjoyed the podcast, as ever, if you pick up the latest issue of the magazine, you can read everything we've discussed. And if you become a subscriber today, you can get 12 issues of the magazine for £12 delivered to your door along with a £20 Amazon gift card. I'm Laura Prendergast. Thank you for listening and do join us again next week.